Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman. Now, before I introduce my next guest, I wanted to encourage everybody listening, if there's a question you have for our guests, send it in using LinkedIn or WhatsApp voice notes, and you could be the one asking the questions next time around. So this evening, I'm joined by Emma Carriaga from British Land. Now, Emma jointly leads the development for Canada Water's 53-acre development project in central London and has been a member of the executive committee since 2019, having previously worked for Landsec, Cress Nicholson and Barrett. So Emma, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, should we get started then? Tell us where chapter one begins. So chapter one for me in terms of my career is me at school, faced with the prospect of completing my A-levels and wondering what I'm going to do next. And in those days, more often than not, we were encouraged to go to university. And so I was struggling to figure out where I might go, what I might read. I didn't have parents who particularly went to school in the UK or knew the UK university system. So I was a little bit on my own in terms of this. But thanks to a brilliant geography teacher, geography was one of the A-levels that I had picked and was good at and enjoyed. Uh, She felt strongly that I needed to go and fulfil my passions in some sort of degree connected with geography. I didn't really like the sound of that particularly, largely because I couldn't see where that got me in terms of a job. So she pushed me quite hard to consider a degree in planning. And as I didn't really want to travel too far away from home, I decided to go to university in London. I went to UCL to a wonderful school called the Bartlett School of Architecture, where I took her advice and signed up to a degree in town planning, having really no idea what it was likely to entail, but just sort of trusting guidance. And I rocked up at UCL and realised very quickly that this was absolutely, uh, for me, it was a particularly fascinating course led by the late Sir Peter Hall, who was my lecturer, the most fantastic, inspiring man who talked about places and what makes them special how you nurture them, how you support them. It was absolutely nothing to do with how you go about getting planning permission, uh, as I quickly discovered. But but that was more for the good because it really appealed to my passions around sort of the social aspect of geography, really. What makes cities tick? Why do people like being in buildings and spaces? And how do we encourage more of that? So I stayed there for uh, three years doing my degree and then decided to stay for a further year and do a fourth year postgrad, which was focused around the theory of sort of gentrification and, you know, how do you think about that? What's good about it? What's not so good about it? And it just was the most awesome immersive course that um, that worked for me. So, a real lesson actually at an early age to sort of listen to people around you if you're not sure on 
what you want to do because she clearly saw what I was interested in and and she was right so I um I finished my four years there and and then was sort of faced with the big wide world and the prospect of having to get a job and in those days you didn't have emails and you know there wasn't really the, the sort of the, the recruiting opportunities there are now so with the careers advisor at the university I wrote off to 50 different organizations I remember expressly there were 50 of them there were planning authorities there were planning consultancies and then there were also developers who I thought all of whom might need some sort of resource from somebody who's done a planning degree and of those 50 letters I only got one reply which was um Barrett Homes which at that stage were looking for some additional resource in their land buying team effectively the the part of the business who sourced negotiated um, acquired lands and who needed to then get planning permission for something before passing it on to the construction and sales teams and so they took me under their wing no graduate program it was a completely inorganic training program if you like where they taught me how to appraise the value of land and you know how you might go about trying to identify new opportunities and then gave me a A to Z of London and a, a red Ford Escort because that was the company car <laughs> that I was due at my level which was beyond the below apprenticeship level probably in those days and sent me out and and I loved it you know driving around identifying opportunities negotiating with landowners and then of course the process of of getting planning permission which I quickly realized having done a four-year uh, stint at UCL I still didn't know how to actually apply for planning permission for anything <laughs> so so they had to to teach me how to do that and they were incredibly generous with their time and and I and I do think having a slightly a traditional I suppose way of of immersing yourself in your first job exposed me to finance to sales to marketing to legal and land buying you know at a very early age where I would have probably have had the access to all that sort of experience and insight had I been doing something a bit more structured um and I you know I found that alluring and interesting and great fun actually well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Just the influence the teachers have on have on us. Sometimes positive, sometimes sometimes negative. But it's clearly they were vindicated then by the by the sounds of things. In terms of the career, it could have could have taken you to. Absolutely. I mean, Mrs. Adams was that geography teacher. I did see her not a few years ago, actually, because she then ended up teaching my daughter, who, um, much to my disappointment, hates geography. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was I, we were waxing on together about how great it was in the good old days and my daughter I think thought you know oh god what are they talking about because it just it's just not her passion which is fine you know she's the dynamics of a teen a teenage mind there I think isn't it Absolutely. anything more my dad likes too much um yeah but uh, but Mrs Adams deserves a lot of credit actually she was great 
Well, when you're sat in this sort of uh, red uh, escort sort of career around London, what do you, what were you thinking the biggest lessons you were learning? I think the value in trying to find a level with people you meet um, and in that job, you know, it was really varied. There were landowners of all different shapes and sizes, you know, with, with different agendas and being able to find a way to empathise, to relate, to negotiate ultimately a, a deal for buying their assets or partnering with them on something taught me at an early age to kind of draw out those skills in interpersonal skills really developing rapports with people and being tough when you needed to I mean house building in those days was a pretty uh, not aggressive but but certainly assertive kind of environment and you needed to stand up for yourself um, be fair be reasonable and you know those were skills that you know, one develops over time in different circumstances, but I think land buying sort of puts you at the at the heart of that pretty early. And because I was left relatively unsupervised at quite an early stage, you sort of have to learn quickly, learn through mistakes, and there were plenty of those made. But yeah, I think uh, I think for strong interpersonal skills, I I did hone those early, and and I think they've been really useful for me actually. Okay, then. When did you spot that that learning was slowing? When did you notice then the sort of the, the curve of that acceleration started to uh, to wane? So I uh, I joined actually Barrett whilst I was finishing my degree. So I I joined them with a view to sort of seeing how it went, and I had I had no real plan at that stage as to how long I would stay. But I did end up staying in house building for 10 years. And that wasn't all with Barrett. I had a brief stint for two years with Cress Nicholson in the middle of what actually was that 10-year stint in house building. So I went from Barrett to Crest and then went back to Barrett. And the reason I moved to Crest was because I felt that I had by that stage done five, six years with Barrett and you're sort of still known as the land graduate. And I think it's quite hard in organisations, particularly that almost quite a small business, a small division of a, of a bigger PLC, but being people's perception of you as having grown in experience is quite hard, I think. And often you need to move away for that recognition that you have developed as a person, your skills have grown. And so moving to Cress Nicholson, I think, was a conscious effort because I felt that I needed I needed that push and promotion and, and I wasn't able to get that where I was. And I joined Crest, which was another house builder, but uh, quite a different one. And I was starting by that stage to have a team that I managed and led and that sort of extra responsibility I think was what I was I was also looking for Um, I was poached back by Barrett actually two years later so I didn't I didn't stay long at Crest uh, but but long enough for Barrett I think to have me back 
in a much more senior role and in a way kind of mission accomplished of what I was looking for in a more senior position with more scope and responsibility that reflected the the sort of years of service I've had or I had had by that stage. So that sort of completed my 10 years in house building and that was uh, was great fun actually but but I was by then I think getting a bit itchy feet because I realised back to my university days that what I really loved was delivering mixed use places. I like that variety of business and residential and retail and leisure and house building in those days wasn't up for doing mixed use developments. They stayed pretty narrow, focused on house building, which they did brilliantly, but they couldn't give me the sort of projects that I really wanted to um, to turn my hand to. So in the heady heights of 2007, when the market was at its peak, if not toppling over, I packed in, in house building and, and joined Lansec, which um, timing-wise was, was interesting given what happened uh, only about 12 months later in terms of the 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 collapse in the market but why I moved was really to try and find a business who was interested in mixed use places and I realized house building probably wasn't going to be where I was going to get that stretch and Lancet came knocking and uh, and offered me that uh, that opportunity and I jumped at it. On paper you wouldn't be the obvious choice would you for a, a big listed office developer having sort of hailed then from the land buying um sort of graduate intake of a, of a house builder what do you what do you think they saw in you at that time when you first joined i think at that stage they were keen to grow their residential portfolio and capabilities and as you say they were more of a commercial developer at that stage focused on offices and retail primarily And so I brought skills in acquiring residential sites, which they had a strategy that was focused around. And my role was to assemble them a portfolio of sites that would deliver them a better balanced portfolio, more weighted towards residential than it had been historically. So I think there was a skills gap in the organisation that I was obviously very suited to given what I came from and for me it was the great opportunity to learn about what they were good at already in commercial space in retail in offices and I think more more than just uses I liked and I was attracted by the idea that they were involved in big projects complex projects and why that was attractive is because house building it's very dynamic, it's very fast paced, but you you are focused on buying land, building it, selling it, and moving on. And I liked I liked that for 10 years and I really enjoyed the the fast pace of it, but I also felt there was a bit of me that wanted to understand what makes places interesting if you're involved in them over the long term you think about the landed estates in London what they can do with places because they 
never sell them, frankly. They just build them and hold on to them and refine them and improve them. So constantly enhancing what you've got and making it better, I think, was was interesting because I've not had any exposure to that. It was um, it was much more um, higher turnover sort of development that I had done. So Landsec gave me the opportunity to understand, you know, how you asset manage properties over the long term and create, in a way, more value, but over a longer term on bigger projects and importantly with a bigger checkbook, which was in my sort of late 20s, not um, unattractive as an opportunity <laughs> to work on on stuff with bigger budgets. So um, so that's why I moved. And, uh, and and it was it was a good move. I mean, it was quite a different sort of organisation coming from house building where people, you know, were pretty informal with one another. And it was a pretty lively atmosphere. So landing in a corporate REIT was a bit of a culture shock. It was large and full of departments of people who focused on aspects that, frankly, I was doing a bit of in my day job in house building because we just didn't have the organisational structures and scales that that Lancet had. So when I left house building, you know, I used to write some of the checks or sign some of the checks and ring customers and ask them what they thought of their properties and would they ever buy a house from us again. And moving to Lancet, you know, there was no question of 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 me getting anywhere near finance. You know, that was for the finance team and checkbooks probably gone out of fashion by then. But you get the point. It was just teams of people focused on bits of business which which I had actually had quite a lot of exposure to so that was quite a change in approach and getting used to that was um took me a while what was the steepest learning curve what was the hardest lesson to learn decision making was much more structured does that mean slower uh a little bit I think I mean in house building when I was involved you know the the managing director had a lot of autonomy and uh, in REIT worlds, you know, I think it's um, it's more considered than that. There is more, there's more governance around it, rightly, you know, I think for, for good reason, because the stakes are much higher and the projects are much bigger. And ultimately, you know, there's decisions that are price sensitive in some of these REITs that probably weren't as significant in the house building world I'd come from so um, so that was something I had to get used to you know just sort of being very considered and professional about how you go about approvals and how you keep people informed it was you know just a bigger beast and uh, and I and I think coming from what I had this sort of relatively organic makeup of house building that was it was good and I enjoyed it, but it, it made you raise your game, actually, and think about why you were doing things, what you were recommending, and a bit more of an academic challenge in a way than perhaps what I'd had historically. Okay. So, Emma, given you were at Landsec for seven years, I wanted to ask then, in order to break this down, you know, what was the proudest achievement? Uh, I was proud of lots of things, I think, while I was there. It was almost seven years to the day, actually. And 
that was because I sort of achieved the mission I set out when I joined, which was to grow their residential capabilities. I did set about, not in a red Ford Escort anymore by then, <laughs> things had improved for me, but um, in a in a better form of transport, acquiring them opportunities in London and the southeast to develop and nurture over a kind of a reasonable period, a strategic land portfolio. But then moved into the central London development team to get involved in their ambition around a vision for Victoria. So as as anyone knows who's walked up and down Victoria Street, it used to be known as a sort of a a corridor for government businesses, pretty tired, desperate looking buildings with everybody running down Victoria Street to either get to Victoria Station or away from it. And Lancet... That's bus interchange, isn't it? (laughs) A little bit, but... uh, But Victoria was largely owned by Lansac, certainly that Victoria Street frontage. And uh, they had a deliberate strategy to change the perception of Victoria, change the urban environment and introduce some really interesting, vibrant buildings, shops and retail and things to do to really bust the perception of what Victoria once was. And I was really fortunate enough to come in midway through that vision and help deliver a number of buildings on Victoria Street, which if I walk down there today, put a smile on my face. They're buildings I'm proud of. I think they architecturally are are super interesting, but just sort of watching people's use of that building, how they, you know, interact with the shops and cafes on the ground floor, sitting on those park benches that we spent kind of hours agonising over the design for. That's a proud moment, actually, seeing the physical manifestation of a lot of time and thought and effort and build by a brilliant team. I'm, you know, I'm really proud of, of that legacy, if you like, that they wanted to leave in Victoria and the, and the part that I played in, in that. It's almost completed now, um, but, but it was a huge development pipeline and and it was and it was a great joy actually to be to be part of of what they did there well i'm a, you know i asked you you know what were the biggest challenges you know what you you're proudest on and so sort of you know given these sort of colossal sort of tasks achieved you know what was it that spurred you on then to to something new to to something next so it got to 2014 after uh, seven years with the organisation and they were coming to the end of the plan for Victoria and having delivered uh, three buildings that, you know, really were central to that, I could see that the sort of near-term development opportunities were going to be not as exciting and perhaps, you know, not not as career-defining as, as what I would like to be involved in. And British land at that stage were at a slightly different point. They had been busy buying lots of land and had the start of what is now Canada Water on the books and needed some help in starting to imagine what that place could look like and invited me to join the organisation in 2014 and I, I leapt at that chance uh, not many people go from British land to 
Landsec or vice versa. I think there's less than a handful of us and we all know who we are. But on the outside, obviously, they they look quite similar organisations and to a large extent sort of focused on on similar sorts of things. But as somebody focused on development at this point in my career, I really wanted to move to a business who had a lot in the hopper that needed sorting and delivering. And British Land at that stage had come to the end, uh, sorry, Landsec at that stage had come to the end of that and British Land were just at the beginning. So uh, so that's why I joined in 2014 and, and have been here ever since. So there's something um, I wanted just to ask you now, and maybe I'm reading too much into the, your words, Emma, but you know, you talked about sort of career-defining projects. You've talked about even the very early days about sort of you couldn't see where a planning degree was going to get you in terms of a job. This all seems very analytical, very, very logical in terms of the steps that you and very purposeful that you've made within these careers. Is that accurate? I think in my later years, I have been quite deliberate about managing my career. And look, you know, it's opportunity led for all of us. So you can have a plan, but you can be disappointed. And there are times when you know, one thinks you're going one way and, and you're not. But I think unless you know what you're good at and what makes you get out of bed in the morning, gets you excited, you know, you're not really going to be purposeful about what you want to do next. And I, I am quite self-aware. I do think about my working day, what I enjoy, what I'm good at, And I think I've moved organisations where I've consciously got to the point where they've had the best out of me or vice versa. And and I'm either a bit bored or or fancies, you know, something new and exciting that I can see as bubbling. So so to that extent, I've been quite deliberate about it. I mean, that goes for uh, what I call my extracurricular jobs as well as my day job I've had non-exec roles in my life since my 20s and they've been massively helpful in making me think about how I organize my time what I focus on and and I guess in a way have perhaps helped me a bit more actively manage my career than than I might otherwise have done I I do credit them with giving me access to good networks, good contacts, exposure to different businesses in all sorts of sectors, actually. And I think that perhaps has, has influenced the way in which we, I have managed my day job or day jobs, if you like, and why I've moved from organisation to organisation. I've only had four jobs, though, in about 25 years. So it's not, it's not as, um, as exciting as it sounds, but but I've moved consciously. I think that's a, a fair assessment. Any advice to anyone who, th- who thinks they could benefit from being a little bit more self-aware, a bit, bit more conscious? I think you've got to make the time. You know, I I don't have a, a strict rule on myself, but, you know, I do annually reflect outside of any sort of appraisal that your organisation might encourage you to do and just set myself some goals for the year 
and hold myself accountable to them. Nobody ever sees that bit of paper apart from me. So if I fail, it's only me that, <laughs> that knows I've failed. But just that process, I think, of saying, actually, you know, in in 12 months, I want to be doing X, Y, Z or, or have made some changes. Just the mere fact of writing that down, I think, is a really good discipline for me in holding myself accountable. And, you know, if I if I achieve it, great. If I don't, I know I haven't achieved it. And and that's that's worked quite well for me. I agree. I think that sounds very positive. Right. Well, I interrupted. We were just getting into the, the, the juicy story, aren't we, with, with British Land. Let's get back onto it. So I joined BL in 2014. And uh, at that stage, they had the bones of the Canada Water project but not all of the assets under their ownership so first and foremost my role was really to try and make sure that we had all of the land that we needed to so for the first couple of years it was almost back to my house building days working with our investment teams to try and identify what land we needed and to go about negotiating uh, our purchase of it and, you know, that that plays to to my strengths. I love a deal and that sort of chase of, of getting a site agreed and bought and, uh, and on the drawing board was was important. But then the the next immediate step was starting to figure out what this place was going to be. What was the the outline vision for it? British land has never done a large multi-phase mixed-use new development. Not many people have, actually. So in many ways, that was quite good because you weren't having to uh, to copy a blueprint. We could think deeply about what might be a new uh, urban district in central London and uh, uh, and do a lot of sort of thinking back to those university days about what makes great places, what is the secret sauce for uh, for a successful development. And then my huge delight when I was joined by Roger Madeline, who joined us from Argent and King's Cross, where he, of course, had been part of the team that had delivered a very successful development. And I think that was, was a great point to sort of learn from somebody who has in another organization been able to uh, to deliver something pretty special and who with me jointly was able to sort of start to redefine what this place might be like and what do we want to deliver and so really the first five years of my stint at British Land were focused on the acquisition and then the visioning and thinking, and then the 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 not dull but the more mundane process of of actually going to to try and get the planning permissions that that you need to to do that. And then with with those under our wing in 2020, the process we then embarked on, which I was a um, was a key part of, is bringing in a third party funding partner so a joint venture partner in Australian super where during COVID we were pitching to uh, a whole range of of different 
patient capital investors, including all super. And they they joined us about 18 months ago as a as a partner where um, where I sort of lead the relationship with them. So fast forward to today, we are on site delivering. Development takes a long time, as you can hear from from the sort of moment at which an asset is um, is identified to the point at which you're building the first building can take years and it has taken years here but these are bits of London which are going to be standing we hope for hundreds of years if you think back to those landed estates we were talking about earlier you know those those need time and thought and investment and patient capital and and businesses like British Land are kind of really well placed to to um, to undertake them and and I'm hugely proud to be leading it and it will in in a few years be another king's cross of that kind of quality we hope or even better let's hope that we'll all be going to visiting enjoying and and talking about as being a major development for uh, for london well uh, i just wanted to, to add a bit of context so for anyone you know um, who's listening to this who isn't familiar with Canada Water or can't quite picture what a 53-acre development looks like. When I was doing my background, I someone put this, I think, sort of very eloquently to say that Canada Water is not only big, it's epic. Uh, and they described it as the largest regeneration in central London. And you introduced then sort of uh, Aussie Super then, yeah, who've who've taken a large stake in uh, in the site. But if British Land and British Land being you know, one of one of uh, the UK's largest prop goes, if they had chosen to have gone solo on this, this would be fifty percent of their balance sheet, and it's ginormous, isn't it? And it's your train set to play with. It is. It is. It's um, it's a such a privilege to be leading the creation of a new district for London. I mean to to give some colour to what the scale means because 53 acres <laughs> doesn't mean much to most people other than it's about 25 football pitches that tends to be a good way of of thinking about it in a scale that under, you know people understand but it will be home to about 20,000 employees who will come and work here come and shop here come out um, to play in the in the daytime or, or in the evening I hope and and also a home for about 6,000 people so it is colossal and I think why that's interesting for all of us is that you know nobody has developed a brand new district in southeast London for decades if not longer and and we're coming at this at a time where we're all scratching our heads in terms of what do cities mean? You know, how do we all want to work in future? Do people want to rent or buy? Can they afford to live in cities? What's retail? What's a night out in London look like? You know, all of those big debates, which we're all party to and have different views on, we've got to try and distill and come up with a product and a proposition that is appealing and attractive to customers, is going to make Australian super and British land the returns that they want, and then also be 
an epic awesome place for people to come and and enjoy and and be part of so I don't underestimate the challenge that we've got and and the dynamic kind of nature of of what makes cities is is a really good it's a good challenge for us to make sure we deliver the absolute best quality place that we can and we're very lucky that we're starting with some good ingredients Canada water is at large but but not very well known actually but with a incredible backstory as a former Dockland area with over 100 acres of wood and water surrounding it we've got phenomenal public transport being two stops to London Bridge but also on the London Overground that goes up to Shoreditch and down to to South East London so it's a great canvas to start with and then our job is to improve the bits that are already here and then add to it with this significant investment and, and development so you must come and see it it's uh, it's looking pretty special already you're on you used the the keyword there about challenge so you know world-class projects world-class challenges right so I wanted to ask you know what keeps you up at night I think making sure we can develop this scheme quickly enough for it to capture everyone's attention I worry you know the UK has has some great examples of brilliant places and I've already mentioned some but but probably a longer list of places that we we look at and pass comment on and they're often schemes that have been decades in the planning Mm. and decades in the delivery and they sort of lose their mojo because they take too long and so we've been really thoughtful with Australian Super about how we get momentum into this development you know what is the sparkle of a place like this we've got the print works which is a superb building left uh, for us by the Daily Mail group who used to print newspapers down here on site and that's a cathedral in the heart of our scheme it's a 1980s industrial cathedral but it's some of that heritage grit and excitement um, that we've been uh, running uh, a fantastic music venue out of for the last five years that's put Carrad Water on the map globally as this uh, really interesting opportunity for for a night out in London and 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 if you think about development it's often those leisure activities the reason people want to go there rather than beautiful buildings or beautiful public realm that we need to uh, to to hold on to so I you know I don't worry about that because I think we're up for the challenge but I I want us to deliver fast I want us to show uh, London and and internationally, you know what what Canada Water can do for London, which I think will be uh, an incredible contribution if we get it right. But you've got to to keep pushing, and and we are. So Emma, this, I I'm going to repeat my uh, question here that I've asked you earlier on. But given the size and the scale of these projects, you know the platform you're on, the responsibility you're on, now I wanted to ask then, you know. What skill have you had to hone or develop most recently in this sort of British land chapter? The thing I've learned 
is that you have got to have a really diverse team delivering projects like this needs all sorts of views and perspectives whether or not you always agree with them is another matter but but the the challenge that comes from a diverse team i think is is mega important so that's that is a wonderful segue to a little bit of research that um uh, i took on before our recording and i asked someone who's close to you what is emma's superpower and this is what they said emma's superpower is communication no matter the topic the audience she can bottle her case explain it and bring people with her would you agree with that oh that sounds very nice thank you very much whoever that was uh i, I do I, I do i'm i'm good at some things but i am pretty clear that i need others to help me be better and so i am consciously trying to find those people to work with me to get us where we need to get to so um yeah that that does resonate with um with what i i think i'm trying to achieve so nice that someone's noticed <laughs> any advice for anyone who thinks that you know who thinks that is their their kryptonite super important i think uh we're all complex people all of us but i think if you have good communication skills and you can wrap yourself around technical skills where you're perhaps less strong i think collectively you can you can do great things so just i guess it comes back to understanding what makes you tick what upsets you what excites you you know and and finding others to work with who are perhaps additive where you're not and that's okay right you know i think we're all we're all important but we're we're not um we're not the full picture on our own well then uh, that's again, again a nice a nice moment then for me to introduce uh, not one of my own questions but another question then from our audience hi i'm kathy and i wanted to ask today's guest what's the one lesson your job's taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their working life? I think the one lesson I've learnt is just spell out what you want. Don't imagine that people know what you want through osmosis or subtle cues. I think there is a, a real case often for being pretty explicit and spelling it out. Right, Emma, I could have carried on talking to you all afternoon, um, but we've got to wrap this up. So thank you so much for sharing not only the story uh, of your career, but the lessons and and also just a, a little bit of an insight into just some of the these sort of Goliath challenges that you've conquered or, or on the path to. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. 